If you haven't done so yet, please go back and read or listen to part one and part two of this series. These are journal entries from March of 2003 from my Operation Rocky Freedom journal. March 1st, Rested. After a busy couple of weeks of orienting to the new team, Met Alpha, and training in preparation for our mission, the next couple of weeks were a slow period where, quite frankly, I spent more time eating, sleeping, reading, and most importantly, learning to play hacky sack than we did on mission prep. I think our motivation to learn the latter was increased due to a cute Air Force girl from an airbed tent who shared a mutual interest in the sport. Given an atmosphere predominantly starved of female presence, this was a pretty big deal. Chief Gonzalez was quick to remind us to take advantage of these times as life would get busy soon enough. So we settled into a routine. Wake up, clean up, chow hall for breakfast, back to the tent for rest, games, laundry, etc. Chow hall for lunch, more resting, playing, chow hall for dinner, back to the tent, then sleep, rinse, and repeat. March 2nd. Went to church. Chow hall burned down. Our task force chaplain, I believe his name was Chaplain Jones, held services for a small group of soldiers every Sunday in a small sandy tent. Services were simple. Singing to a CD, he used a Petra worship CD, kind of dated, and a message in prayer. Outside of this, my faith was expressed in very simple ways. I regularly read my Bible and prayed and had several conversations with other soldiers that were probably more meaningful than the usual fluff in civilian church. Outside of this, I tried to work hard, be a good friend to others, and stay positive. With regard to the chow hall burning down, the word was that a Kuwaiti worker got upset, maybe perhaps from poor work conditions, and he took a cigarette to the side of the tent. It didn't take long for it to go. I remember walking out of the tent for chapel to see the plume of smoke. While at first the development was at least cause for some excitement, it didn't take too long before we longed for the good old days. The MKT, mobile kitchen trailers, were busted out and breakfast and dinner for the next couple of weeks were comprised of boiled hot dogs and rice. March 3rd to 4th, no entries. March 5th to 6th, sandstorms. The first of a few sandstorms that we would experience in Kuwait and then later in Iraq. In the early days of the war, a sandstorm rolled in that significantly slowed the advance. At first, it was a novelty and kind of a fun event. After that, we could do without them. More on this later. March 7th to 8th, no entries. March 9th, XTF formation, Doha. At the task force formation, the only thing I can recall is Colonel McPhee telling us that, quote-unquote, the only way home is north. He liked giving speeches, though from my perspective as one who has made a living in part from public speaking, he wasn't very good at it. After this, we took an XTF pick, I can't find it unfortunately, and then took a day trip to Doha. There's a link in the text version of this podcast that will tell you a little bit more about that location. It included a large PX with several fast food restaurants. Unfortunately, the lines were insanely long, so that was about all I remember doing, along with a little window shopping. March 10th to 12th. No entries. As a side note, there's a fair amount of humorous things that transpire in the military. And while those who have not served might have a hard time understanding it, this is especially true when deployed overseas. I might dedicate a future entry to nothing but some of my favorite humorous moments, but for now I will just mention one that most likely transpired around this time. There are these chocolate bars that come in MREs, or meals ready to eat. We call them hula bars. Let's just say that their ultimate purpose is probably something more to do with plugging you up than their intrinsic tastiness. However, they are also an excellent source of practical jokes. When taken in your hand and rolled, they take on an uncanny resemblance to something that happens when you are not plugged up. One night, someone on our team, not sure who it was, decided to place one of these gifts on a pillow of a guy in our tent who was working a graveyard shift, communications if I recall correctly. When he got back later that night, all we heard was a string of expletives followed by the rest of us laughing as he actually thought for a moment that one of us had taken a dump on his pillow. 
March 13th, road in Chinook to Iraq border. I think that we did this so that some of us could get a feel for the Chinook. Outside of this, we got a bird's eye view of the ground troops stacking up along the border in preparation for the land assault. March 14th, no entries. March 15th, third phone call, Gma passed away. Before the war started, the ability to communicate back home was mediocre at best. At Camp Udari, there was a small tent with a few phones set up. If you had time to kill and didn't mind waiting in line for an hour, and the stars perfectly aligned, that is, the phones actually worked, you could get a few minutes to talk with family or friends back home. On this day, I was fortunate to get through, though unfortunate to hear of the passing of my grandma, my dad's mom. I loved her very much and recalled how disappointed I was that I was not able to attend her memorial service. March 16th. Interesting briefing on history of Shia, Sunni, Kurds, and Christians in Iraq. Saddam's history, description of Iraq's seven intelligence agencies. Having been a student of biblical history, I perhaps knew more about the history of the region than many around me. However, this was still enlightening, though also sadly an eerie foreshadowing of the conflict to come in the years ahead. March 17th. President's Deadline This was the official deadline for Iraq to comply or face military consequences, though the thought that we would all turn around and go home if there was a political breakthrough at any point prior to this date was quite laughable. While much controversy still surrounds when exactly a final decision was made on going to war with Iraq, one thing can be safely said. It was before March 17, 2003. March 18th. All quiet. While I can't recall if this was the exact date, I remember that right around this time, Sergeant First Class Veach, the NCOIC of Met Alpha, pulled us aside to describe in very broad terms what was going to happen in the near future as far as military strategy. It wasn't complicated. The Army's 3rd Infantry Division and 1st Marine Expeditionary Force was going to basically punch it right up the gut with 1st ID going to the left and 1st MEF going to the right through Anajaf. It was almost described like a race towards Baghdad. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions would be heavily in the mix as well. Most of 101st Air Support was based at Camp Udari, which accounted for a massive amount of choppers on the airfield. All those Apaches would head north and take out an entire Iraqi division. It was also around this time that they handed out revised ROEs, or Rules of Engagement. The quiet will not last for much longer. March 19th, CIA calls fire on convoy, possibly Saddam, late in the evening. This would effectively kick off the war. March 20th, Scud alerts all day. Reports of three launches, two landing, and one shot down via Patriot. Iraq starts to set southern oil fields on fire. We can see the glow at night. U.S. launches ATACMs, and late in the evening, 3rd ID and 1st MEF invade after initial artillery bombardment. We can hear the howitzers and paladins booming away in the distance. It was interesting to see others, and even myself in retrospect, respond for the first time to being potentially attacked in the case of Scud warnings. If you don't know what a scud is, I put a link in the text version of this podcast. The first time definitely got my blood pumping. Our chief, who prior to becoming a fire direction officer, was a ranger who had seen time in Somalia, and Sergeant First Class Feech, our NCOIC, was parachuted into Iraq in the first Gulf War. So they were decidedly more calm when we heard an incoming missile. In contrast was one occasion when all of a sudden we heard a couple of female soldiers screaming, Incoming! Incoming! As we looked out the door of our tent, we could see them sprinting to their tent, so frantic that half their gear looked like it was about to fall off. We all got a good laugh out of that. Later on, Bross and I were outside when another alert happened, and we donned our gas masks and crammed into a scud bunker with a bunch of other soldiers to include some Brits. As we waited for the all-clear, I looked over at the Brits and noticed that they were taking pictures with the disposable cameras. 
I figured if they weren't so concerned, why should I? If I recall correctly, later that night, Chief pulled the team aside and talked to us a bit. He mentioned that what we were about to experience together would bond us together for the rest of our lives. Hearing the artillery was memorable too. Not that I hadn't heard the sound before. I was an artillery man myself, and back at Fort Sill, we were accustomed to hearing the king of battle at work. But these shells and missiles weren't landing on an empty shooting range anymore. They were taking out people. Lives were ending. Even if they are the quote-unquote enemy, that's a silvering thing. The glow and smoke from the burning oil fields would last for weeks. March 21st. We are supposed to jump into Iraq on the 24th, but we will probably have a mission sooner. More scud alerts, forces progressing quickly, only one to two casualties so far. Word that a whole Iraqi division surrenders, possibly a second. Chief or Sergeant Veach would give us brief reports, almost once a day, things they would hear when they went to the daily briefings. As far as the timing of us going into Iraq, that ended up being way off. March 22nd. Troops are having to slow down because supply can't keep up. Things are going well. By the end of the third day, there was almost a sense that this was going to be a cakewalk. That changed the next day. March 23rd. Early in the morning, there are two close interval explosions, loud. We don gas masks probably 30 minutes later, given the all clear. We hear of a translator tossing two grenades in an officer tent at Camp Pennsylvania, but that is too far away for explosions that loud. At morning formation, we are told that two scuds were shot down and that there was an incident at Camp Penn. One officer shot, three frag grenades tossed in tents, 15 wounded, six critical, one eventually died by the end of the day. Later in the evening, we found out that one of the loud explosions last night was a Brit plane, a tornado, being accidentally shot down. It's believed that its beacon, identifying it as a friendly, was not working, that our Patriot battery misidentified it as a scud. I don't know what to say to the Brits in our tent. Around 9.30 p.m., we hear of a support maintenance convoy ambushed behind 3rd ID's advance. Company is decimated. Quite a few Blackhawks leave from Camp Udari as a part of a mass cas medevac. Fifteen are captured at MIA and six or seven are executed live on Al Jazeera. We are still waiting for our first sight. I want to go north and join the fight. Today was a bad day. At minimum, eight U.S. soldiers dead, two Brits. The convoy ambush that I'm referring to is the one that involved Jessica Lynch, with her whole rescue story now a source of debate. The report of live executions ended up being false. Actual figures of those killed was worse, 11 killed in action, but those captured were less, five, and all were eventually rescued. I remember having a hard time going to sleep that night. I was experiencing anger like never before. I remember thinking in my mind that I had 210 rounds on me and that there would be 210 dead Iraqis if they could just let me go north. Of course, our mission was not directly combat-related, so the likelihood of us engaging in that kind of combat was slim, let alone the fact that I'm not that great of a shot. But I'm just being honest with how I felt at the time. I'm not a violent man, but I obviously had to be willing to kill if absolutely necessary. I joined the army, after all. There was a quote from the Lord of the Rings that was meaningful to me at the time, which went like this. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. But now I was not only willing to kill in defense of others, but I had in that moment a desire to take human life. I'm not proud of that moment. As far as the Scud missiles, that first actual attack is something I'll never forget. Those explosions were so loud. In basic, you're trained to be able to put your gas mask on in less than eight or nine seconds. I promise you, I got that thing on much quicker than that. Then I, like many others, I suppose, just laid back down on my cot and prayed that the wreckage not land on our tent. Later that day, when we heard that one of the explosions was a friendly fire, I just remembered how despondent the Brits in our tent were. I don't recall anyone talking about it with them. 
Maybe we all just felt it was better to give them space. Earlier that morning at formation, I'm pretty sure we'd sheared the report that those two explosions were scuds that were shot down. Now I think we were playing that moment in our mind, knowing that one of those two explosions was the ending of two Brit pilots' lives as they came back from a combat mission over Iraq. The incident at Camp Pennsylvania was the second time soldiers had died this side of the Iraqi border, the first being the Black Hawk accident I described in an earlier entry. March 24th. Early in the AM, we hear another explosion. Patriot intercepts another missile, not Scud this time. We hear a second report of Iraqis pretending to surrender and then opening fire. No fatalities yet today. Marines running into some pretty decent fight now, 50 reportedly injured. Same with 3rd ID. A little before 2 p.m., two loud explosions, believed to be two missiles intercepted over Camp Udari. Later, we are told that our air defense battery has intercepted 10 Scud missiles, the most of any ADA battery in the theater. Report that downed Apache crew recovered, Apache wreck destroyed by ATACM, fired by an MLRS unit. This would be the last time we hear a Scud or missile shot down, and for the most part, warnings slowed to a trickle. Only once do we see the actual wreckage of a Scud. It had landed about 50 yards from the chow hall. I think we were more concerned where the wreckage landed than the projectile itself. Some might recall from the first Gulf War when 28 members of a Pennsylvania National Guard unit were killed when the debris of a scud landed on their barracks in Saudi Arabia. The battle I make reference to regarding the Marines took place at Nazaria. March 25th. Third ID about 80 kilometers out of Baghdad. Marines slightly behind. Possibly we might go on first mission tomorrow. Not a lot of news. Scud alert at the Chow Hall. March 26th. Here late last night that two U.S. tanks and a Bradley were destroyed in fighting outside of Baghdad about 50 miles out. We retaliated and killed an estimated 500 Iraqis. We also hear report that they are using hospitals, mosques, and ambulances to hide and screen their movements, especially of high-ranking officers. Essentially, it's guerrilla warfare. That's okay, as Chief says it. Game on. We should go to our first site tomorrow. It was hard still being in Kuwait, and I think this entry reflects the mood of that moment. Still in retrospect, I find it sobering that I glossed over a figure as profound as 500 dead and quote-unquote enemies. A great irony of my life is that I would years later spend time working for an organization that, among other services, provided assistance to Iraqi refugees arriving in Sacramento. Perhaps some of them had lost a friend or family member among those 500. War is always tragic, a reality I did not comprehend until I went through this experience. Prior to that, I had been used to the steady diet of Fox News, and that side of war didn't fit into this narrative. March 27th, large Iraqi convoy headed south, vehicles numbering in the hundreds, is destroyed, believed to be a part of a counterattack on 3rd ID. Elsewhere, 70-plus convoy destroyed by Brits, 101st prepping to invade Baghdad. From a purely military standpoint, the Iraqi military never stood a chance as it did in the first Gulf War. These counterattacks were pure suicide on the part of the commanders who ordered them. Thankfully, these were the exception to the norm as large-scale surrendering was more common. March 28th. Pretty quiet, Colonel McPhee finds two lost soldiers. In his moment of glory, our task force commander found two U.S. soldiers who had gotten lost from their unit. Other than a few bumbling speeches and what I perceive to be his inadequate leadership on an eventually floundering mission, this is all I can recall of him. March 29th. One Marine accidentally gets separated from his unit and is killed and dragged through the streets. Four Army soldiers are killed at a checkpoint in suicide explosion. Here we are starting to get a foreshadowing of the style of warfare that would characterize this war for years to come. As you can tell, we, we are still in Kuwait. As frustrating as this was, it was good that someone could find the humor in it. Leave that to a member of Met Bravo, Corporal Sifkis, who came up with an alternative version of the lyrics for Jennifer Lopez's Jenny from the Block. 
His revised lyrics went something like this. Don't be fooled by the war in Iraq. I'm still, I'm still sitting on my cot. In general, he was an endless supply of laughs and a good guy who I've reconnected with years later via Facebook. March 30th. A Kuwaiti worker in a pickup truck runs over a group of soldiers in line at the PX here at Camp Udari. Three soldiers attached to 75th in the line. One of our guys who was on our team runs after the driver and shoots him twice. He is captured. Thirteen soldiers are wounded, but none critically. Original report had two to three nationals opening fire in or by our PX from a white van. Med Alpha and soldiers from other units help create a perimeter. A white van is stopped within our sight and three nationals surrender are under question. They turn out to be fine. Must have had the piss scared out of them. Elsewhere, four nationals or workers are found locked in a connex. Security tightens. As is obvious from this and previous entries, just because we weren't in Iraq didn't mean that there wasn't any real danger. Those guys who were taken from the van must have been scared shitless. There must have been about a hundred weapons, including my own, zeroed in on them. March 31st. No entries. In part four, we will review April journal entries, which finally covers our movement into Iraq. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember that you can check out more of my takes on faith, social justice, and popular culture, along with other life-inspired musings, by visiting www.curtelewis.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from this and other publications featured on my website, would you take a few minutes to show your support? First, you can share it with your friends via social media, text, message, email, word of mouth, pigeon bird, cave art, whichever you prefer. Second, if you're listening on iTunes, take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast and to give it a positive review. Lastly, you can help me to continue to produce these podcasts by making monthly or one-time financial contributions. Click on subscribe support on the website to learn more. Again, thanks so much for listening.